Welcome back to the Renaissance, episode 25, Papa Bear. How are you today? Ave. Doing, Ave. doing great. Um, <laughs> that takes me back. We haven't done Ave for a long time. Oh, my God. Yeah. I figured it's Latin, so we're covered for this entire series, or at least up until a point. So, yeah, I thought I'd throw that back in. I said Ave to Burt Reynolds yesterday. Ah, uh, Burt. Burt. I loved Burt. Yeah. Wanted to be Burt. Yes. Not not only be, yeah not only because uh, he was hooked up with Sally Fields there for a while but uh, and he had the cool car yeah. couldn't grow a mustache right. though that was my problem if it, if it wasn't for that I'd, I would be Bert I always okay. wondered did Tom Selleck have to pay Bert royalties for basically stealing his persona and uh, look do you think that was a thing they did a deal there was like a passing of the torch from Bert I, to Tom I don't think he had to, but I think there was a gentleman's agreement. So, so some, yeah, some money changed hands. It was, it was the right thing to do. Thank you for the cool seventies look. I will take it from here. I, I, I like to think of it that as, kind of I like to think of it as like the Dread Pirate Roberts. Like it, it's not really a person. It's just, a, it's a title. They're like Burt Reynolds passed on the Burt Reynolds mantle to Tom Selleck. Who I'm sure has passed it on to, so we'll pass it on at some point to somebody else, and we'll yeah. just have. An yeah. endless supply Take him out on the of ship, get a new crew. Right, right. Cool mustachioed bad boys with a heart of gold. Um, yeah, Bert. Jumping things with their car. And Bert was going to yeah. be in Quentin Tarantino's new Manson film and oh. uh, didn't get to shoot his bit before he died. Um, Damn. And, you know, that's sad when you don't get to shoot your bit before you die. That's right. Anyway. I love shooting my bit. Anyway. I know. Um, into people with Burt Reynolds mustaches, uh, quite often. <laughs> let's talk about, speaking of men with mustaches, I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, so we're going to talk uh, about um, the next father of the Renaissance. We did Petrarch in the last three episodes. I don't know if you remember that, Ray, but um, we're going to talk about yes. one of his one of his mates, one of his Best buddies who was also yeah. a, a co-father of the Renaissance, probably not as well known as Petrarch, um, but right. uh, deserves a huge amount of credit, even though, as we'll find out, yeah, he's an interesting guy. But uh, before we get into that, I just want to talk about why we're, we're talking about these writers. Um, okay. You know, they're... they're an interesting thing's going on uh, in in the sort of 14th century where we are. Mm-hmm. Most people um, up until this point in time have been fairly illiterate, uh, so there's there's right. no need to write books if there's no one to read them. Uh, <laughs> it's like making podcasts that no one listens to. I mean, we do it, but. Uh, we- <laughs> but- Really, it's we've been doing it a long time. Uh, yeah. 
Maybe one day, one day we'll have an audience. Writers in the mid-14th century, early to mid-14th century, were basically the podcasters of their day. They're just putting stuff out. No one's, no one's listening. No one's reading it because they can't. They don't have iPhones yet. But they're like, well, we know that one yeah. day they will. We somebody will invent books right. and the printing press, and so we're just getting ahead, we're ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This um, is the data entry point. Yeah, 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 yeah. And particularly, there was no point back then writing books in the vernacular, everyday, common, let's say Italian in this case, because right. look, the people who could read read Latin. The people who couldn't read Latin didn't read at all. So there just weren't oh. books being written in everyday Italian because there was no point. No one was going to read it. Yeah. To, in, yeah. Order, in order for there to be a point, you had to have a class of people that had enough education to be literate and that's not enough, right? And you have to have an interest in the time to read shit <laughs> for leisure. Not right. like okay, I'm 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 a lawyer, so I need to read my law, or I'm an accountant, right. I need to read up about double entry accounting. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I need to. I want to read for fun. I can read, and I have the time to read for fun. And so, right. what's what started to happen in the early to mid 14th century in Italy is that class of people started to emerge. Oh. Do you know who they were, Ray? Um, I don't want to show off or anything, but I'm going to guess that they were the 50% of the country that didn't die of the plague. <laughs> yeah, that's narrowed it down. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I don't know the well-to-do, the money people, the, the priests, the clerics. I don't know who. Tell me. Well, it was the merchant class. Ah, oh, I was close. So not the priests. No, right. the priests were the priests had the education, or the, the clergy, the clerics, the, the, the scribes, the monks, they had the education, but it was mostly Latin. Um, and B, uh, they were reading churchy stuff. <laughs> mostly. And Is there a cross porn. on the cover of the book? Then no, I'm not gonna read it. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Or kitty porn. It was church is is that's all they were interested More in. Pictorial, but go ahead. Yeah, you don't need to read that. Yeah, it's just like little sketches. Um, the rise of the merchant class. So these guys had an education, and they could they they were literate, and they had the the opportunity, the time, because they they weren't hand to mouth, they weren't tilling the soil. Right. They had the opportunity to sit back at night, put their feet up. On 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 the back of a slave, probably. Uh, That's how I do. Get that slave to light a pipe, uh, and they could read. <laughs> I'm not saying it was pretty. They didn't have it perfect, no. but uh, you know, they they had the basics there. Now, until the 12th century, merchants tended to travel around Europe, doing mm-hmm. basically door to door sales. Ah. Uh, you know, you would go from city to city and 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 sell your wares. Right. They didn't have the internet. Um, yeah. I, I, I discovered that doing my research. They didn't really? have the internet in the 12th century. Yeah, uh, don't know when that happened, uh, but uh, sometime century. after that. Right, right. 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 Yeah. But then two two major things happened. The first was 
the development of better accounting techniques, which led to double entry accounting. Um, and do you know where that came from? How they stumbled across better accounting techniques? Oh, oh, it's on the tip. It's up. No, yeah, it's always on the tip. I always, like, I always love this story. Um, so what happens is the church decides they're going to invade the Holy Land during sure. the Crusades. They yeah. go to the Holy Land. They they they, they learn the numbers zero uh, and and basics of better accounting, which the merchants then bring back and use to basically destroy the church um, <laughs> because it leads to. The, Leads in large part to the Renaissance. <laughs> so there, that's yeah, yeah. So the, the Muslims were playing a long game. Oh, they were playing four D four D Trump chess. There, yeah. You can come and invade us, but we're going to give you maths, bitches. Right. It's like a virus. Oh, oh wait, do you? Yeah, yeah maths. <laughs> the maths Nowhere. virus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of us consider math uh, a virus, but please continue. Yeah. Yeah, certainly hurts my head sometimes. Um, so they so double double entry accounting, better accounting made them better business people, uh-huh. uh, which meant they could run more profitable businesses, and they started to be able to hire salespeople. They also, just were able to stay home more because the second thing that happened was correspondence, business by writing. So you could you could do a deal with somebody in a foreign land, mm-hmm. have have a contract written, sent to them, signed, notarized, boom. Nice. Send your send your goods on the back of a cart. The first email. Um, yeah, <laughs> carts were the first emails. Um, so it so these things started to mean that merchants didn't have to be on the road all the time, and they had time for leisure. Right. Putting their feet up on the slave at night, that kind of thing. So these merchants were literate, but their education had most been mostly been around numbers mm-hmm. uh, and and contracts. But most of them had no knowledge of Latin. They didn't oh. need to, they didn't need to read highfalutin Latin documents or, for or them. Churchy. Yeah, 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 yeah. For them, everyday Italian was the only language that they had to read and write in. Mm-hmm. Now, also at the same time, in civil government, there were big changes happening too. Um, and we'll explore this at different points in the series, but the, the control of the papacy uh, across Italy had weakened a lot, particularly in places like Florence. Right. And the, the city councils in these places began to rely on written records and the legal system as well, too. So when you don't have the the Pope and the bishops saying, well, you have to do this just because the Lord said so, right. you, have, you have to write shit down, yeah, right? So a, dec- a, a decrease in the power of the church meant that written records, contracts, agreements, the legal system, notaries, judges, these things became a lot more important. Which meant that, and in order for those things to work, people need to be able to read and write. Hmm. You have to have an infrastructure of people who can handle all the documentation. Plus, if somebody's going to sign a contract, a merchant, for example, they need to be able to read it. It's not right. very 
solid if you can't read the thing that you're signing. It's not going to hold up very well. It's never stopped me. Um, <laughs> you just, that's how you ended I, up doing this show. I put my you're ex, like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I could do that. Um, the administrative literacy uh, in Italy developed earlier than everywhere else. Mm. And so that's why one of the reasons the Renaissance is going to emerge in Italy, in places like Florence, it has a lot to do with the rise of the merchant class. Mm-hmm. So in, in the middle of the 13th century, so the 1250s thereabout, the, the whole sort of cities, independent city-states, your Milans, your Florences, etc., in Italy started to become highly bureaucratic, keeping records of council meetings and court proceedings, and most of these are being written in the vernacular, right. everyday Italian. Okay. So you, you get this combination of higher levels of literacy, the acceptance of the vernacular as a written language as opposed to high Latin, mm-hmm. which it had been for the previous, ah. you know, 1,000, 1,500 years, right? Right. Um, And and then it leads to a rising education. I was interested to figure out what the literacy rates were, what the education rates were in Italy at the time. I looked it up. So there was a contemporary uh, uh, chronicler in Florence in the early 14th century called Giovanni Villani. (coughs) It was his rapper name. Uh, (laughs) Giovanni Villani. He... (laughs) He he said that in 1339 in Florence, eight to ten thousand boys were in, boy were in <laughs> elementary education. Wow! He said it in a rap. Right. Uh, yeah, so that's a that's a massive. Considering that the population of Florence at the time was about ninety thousand people, yeah, uh, means that about ten percent of the population children were yeah. receiving education at any given time. Now, it's much higher than I expected it to Absolutely. be in the 1330s. Yeah. I mean, I think there are parts of the United States today <laughs> no. where you no. don't have 10% of people who are literate, right? Well, let's put it this, let's put it this way. And the movie The Bandit, A Bandit with Burt Reynolds, there were parts of certain states that Burt went through that, yeah, um, Florence had a Smokey higher, and the Bandit? Right, Smokey and the Bandit. About? There we go. Uh, there are parts of uh, the South where uh, Florence had a higher literacy rate. I'm just putting that out. Well, not, not to mention um, the, the... Their teeth? D- no. <laughs> What's the ding-a-ding-ding-ding-ding-ding-ding film that he was in? Oh, oh, Deliverance. <laughs> the f- Deliverance. Deliverance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's set. That in was even lower than, uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Burt Reynolds movies. We're going to be talking Gator next. And Gator, <laughs> Burt Reynolds said. Oh, anyway, where were we? As Burt said in you know, the, the, the nine inch, what was it? The whole, whole nine yards, the original whole nine <laughs> yards, Burt said. Something about throwing a football. Um, so there you go. So 10% of the population. Now, Villani also wrote that one-fourth of the boys would go on to one of six Abaco schools mm-hmm. in the city to learn commercial mathematics. Nice. And 
A further 550 to 600 would receive further education at one of four grammar schools in Florence. Mm. So, um, you know, they, they, they were getting education, yeah. these kids, yeah. some, some of them higher education. Um, in 1288, a schoolmaster in Milan called Bonvicinus da Ripa. Sure estimated that there were at least 70 teachers of beginning letters and a further eight professors of grammar wow. in Milan in 1288. Just one city-state. Wow. Yeah, so, so, so education was a booming thing, um, which brings us to Giovanni Boccaccio, um, the... Uh, yeah. Sorry? Yeah. No, I was going to say, if, if you're going to jump into his biography, there's, there's something I wanted to... Uh, preface it with uh, before we jump into the actual, uh, the man, uh, the myth, the legend. It just dawned on me as you were saying that last part, I don't think we stressed enough, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we stressed enough why these various city-states have the money, um, and they're all involved in trade, that they're going to have the money, not only for wars, for fighting each other, but uh, money to spend, and you could say, in some instances, almost throw away on art when you could be doing something else. But because of Italy's location, it is like the middleman between what's going on in Germany and France and Britain and what we call the Middle East. So they're in this perfect position. They're the middleman. They're making a lot of money. There's a lot of trade going on um, back and forth. And so because they're handling, it's going through their hands, there's a, a lot of money, a lot of riches being generated for all the, these city-states. And yes, they will spend it on war, but they will spend it on art, as we're going to see later on. And, and I just want to throw that out real quick. I don't know if we've really stressed that enough. Um, but to get back to... No, Bacon, I think... Yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I think when we get into uh, the Medici, which we'll probably do right. next. So, yeah, I, I want to sort of talk about, yeah, the sort of yeah. the rise of Florence and the wealth and the power of Florence and Milan and these places sure. a little bit more. Oh, I think yeah. when we're doing the Medici, that's a good time to get into that. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I just I know we're going to do it in great detail. I just wanted to mention if everybody's wondering why these guys have got tons of cash. Um, so before we go on to Boccaccio, I think it's worth um, pausing for a moment and remember the humanist idea that is starting to be around at this, at, at this time, which we mentioned before, Septientia et eloquentia, knowledge and eloquence. And we've talked about Petrarch, and he is focused on the ancient classics because of its pure Greek. Um, and even though Camus said this correctly several times, they weren't really focused on what the words meant in the ancient cla- uh, classics. They were just focused on the beauty of the purity of the Latin. People like Petrarch are starting to say, you know what? What's wrong with focusing on the state of man and the here and now? Why does everything have to be about what's going to happen to me after I die, the afterlife? So he is starting the conversation that is going to lead to knowledge. He also helped with eloquence, but certainly Boccaccio, with his beautiful prose and poetry, is going to lend itself to this further development of eloquence in the vernacular Italian as well. So if you have Dante, you've got Petrarch, and now you've got the coming Boccaccio, the three crowns of Italian literature. And uh, like Petrarch, I just think it's interesting that Boccaccio knew, he was acutely aware of his position uh, as far as the, the changes that are coming, there was the classical age, there was the medieval age, and now it seems like there's going to be something or something's already started. There's this new 
between business, between literature, but certainly with what Dante did, there seems to be this new culture emerging. There's also the Christians and the pagans. So when it comes to European humorous literary culture, Boccaccio is one of the big ones. So he was purposefully trying to push this along, even though he probably couldn't really define it. But he is, like like Petrarch, trying to shake off the mold of the Middle Ages. Yeah, interesting guy, Giovanni Boccaccio. Um, A little creepy and a little (laughs) rapey, as we will see over the course of these next couple of episodes. What's a little rapey? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I shouldn't have asked. Well, you'll find out. Um, That's true. But nonetheless, one of the fathers of the Renaissance. Now, little known fact, um, his surname was originally pronounced Bukakio, and... um, he he actually invented bukake. Now, if you don't know what bukake is, I don't. It's when um, a mummy and a daddy and a daddy and another daddy and a daddy and a daddy and another daddy all decide wow. that mummy needs some special facial moisturizer. <laughs> um, so look that up, bukake. Just um, same time you look up. Just Goatsy don't do it and naked pictures. Goatsy, of Burt yeah. yeah. Just don't do it on your work computer. No, um, no. Getting back to Bukaki, I mean Boccaccio. Um, most people, as, as I said earlier, haven't heard of him. Um, but if you've studied literature, and let's be honest, if you have, you're probably not listening to this podcast. Right. <laughs> you don't need us. You've already moved beyond. <laughs> And if you have and you started listening, you probably turned off about 30 yeah. seconds ago when I started yeah. talking about Bukaki. Although you probably don't know what it is because you're you learn you know, something. You're, you stick you're with civilized. Us. Yeah. You probably know him as one of the world's greatest storytellers. Uh, if for no other reason than he's the author of The Decameron, the mm-hmm. book that prophesized me right. uh, that I would come and do a, a podcast about him. Ironic. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. 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 We'll get into The Decameron later on. But students of. Humanism know him as one of the pioneers of this revival of learning and also as one of the world's greatest lovers, like like me. So, like Petrarch, right. he turned his love life into literary masterpieces. Right. We, we mentioned him earlier uh, in the Petrarch show. Uh, they didn't... Uh, they kind of knew of each other. Uh, they they had correspondence, uh, but they didn't end up meeting, I think, until around about 1350, and then they were uh, best friends for the rest right. of their life, basically. Nice. They, they, yeah, they, they, they held hands and uh, <laughs> in, they said they invented the Renaissance. <laughs> they sat down and they mapped Over a it weekend. out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on yeah. Skype. They were like you and me. They were the Cameron and Ray of the Renaissance, <laughs> these two guys. Except for they accomplished more, slightly more. <laughs> well, you know, you gotta you gotta you gotta give us seven hundred years for our true That's impact true. And to be rapey. realized, Ray. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we're not we are many things. Well I say well, with each other. But we I still say I alone. never gave you official written permission to do what you did to me <laughs> in Vegas. But uh we'll let the lawyers sort that out. Okay, um, okay one of us is not rapey. Mm. Now Boccaccio, before becoming acquainted with Petrarch, um, was actually writing 
more in a medieval tradition, some of his earlier works, writing in the vernacular. Right. Um, uh, uh, and then later on, he starts to get more interested in classical studies, getting deep into the ancients. Um, but, you know, even his earlier stuff is uh, important, mm-hmm. as we'll see, from a humanist perspective. But it's the later, the later part of his life when he really gets into his classical studies and produces a number of masterpieces, again, that most people today haven't heard of, right. but in their time and for the huge. next few hundred years were hugely influential. <laughs> and guys like Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, Billy Shakespeare... <laughs> Etc. Um, <laughs> oh, a huge yeah. debt yes. to Boccaccio, as we'll see. If you're wondering, who is this guy? Why should I give a fuck? Bukaki, sure, fine, get that. <laughs> but why is he important from a literary perspective? Yeah. Um, you know, stay listening because this story has not only influential writing, but but also rape um, <laughs> and and extreme creepiness. And no one, um, which, no one does rape like we do. Uh, coverage. <laughs> I meant, I meant, we cover. Okay, we cover the subject of rape. Anyway, yeah, but in many ways, uh, you know, scholars today think that probably Boccaccio's greatest service to the Renaissance was that he was the guy that recognized the greatness of Petrarch, right? And he became like Petrarch's greatest disciple in Florence, mm. and told everyone about Petrarch. Um, so if, if ah. not not only his own writings, but the fact that he, he said to everyone, hey, have you uh, checked out Check this, this Petrarch shit? Go to this, his website. This, yeah. This shit is dope, yo. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, everyone started to get – everyone started to get – he kept saying, forget Bukaki. Petrarch is where you need to be. That's right. Son. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, are we ready to cover his birth? Yes. Let's get into the birth okay. of Boccaccio. Now, I had I had read, uh, was actually had trouble discovering some details. There doesn't seem to be too much known about his birth. It was June 16th, 1313. Really lucky year. Um, he was either born... <laughs> In Florence or near Florence in a village called Certaldo, 35 kilometers southwest of Florence, where his family was from. Uh, his, uh, now, would they, since his father was called Boccaccio as well, would he be Boccaccio Sr.? Or I wonder if they skipped that. But anyway, his father was well, in Florence. Yeah, go ahead. I've got his father's name was Boccaccino, Boccaccino. the little-known brother of Cappuccino. <laughs> um, the, the less... <laughs> Yeah. So how would you like that? Yeah. So he was a Florentine uh, merchant, Boccaccio di Chicholi, Chielli. You know how do you say his name? I'm completely butchering that. Chilino, Chilino. There we go. God, I'm, I'm getting on my time. Chilino is what I have. Now, unfortunately, his mother. We don't know her name, his biological mother. We don't know her name, but she was French. I'm sure she was hot, and I'm sure they weren't married when Boccaccio does come along in 1313. She can't have been that hot if he didn't even marry her. Well, what's more important? Why do you assume she was hot? I mean... Because she's French. Like... <laughs> and she could do things. Okay. 
Yeah. I like Will, Will Durant in his uh, History of the Renaissance calls the, the mother a French lass of doubtful name and morals. Yeah, see? That's what I'm talking about. I'm a girl of doubtful name and morals. I like that. It's so, it's so nicely of doubtful name. Not like yeah. she was a filthy whore. No. A French lass of doubtful name and morals. That's classy. It's, I want that on my tombstone. Boccaccio Sr. hit that, but it did, I don't know if he hit it again, but he hit it at least once because a child comes along, Boccaccio. And then he ends up with the child. Yeah. The father moves back to Florence, uh, or close to Florence. Certaldo's just outside of Florence, and marries another woman, Margarita. Mm-hmm. He takes the baby with him, but not the mother. So maybe she died in childbirth. Maybe he just said, "I'll have that. You can fuck off." I don't right. know, but um, I'm not quite sure how it worked yeah. in those days. But um, basically, Margarita, the stepmother, was Caitlin Stark to Boccaccio's <laughs> Jon Snow. She didn't like him. No. She had her own son with Boccaccino. Right. Was actually, they called him Cappuccino. Um, so, well, yeah. Mean, he, yeah, he's the child of a whore, a French whore, so why should she dote on him? And she doesn't. From what I gather, the first 10 years of his life were most unpleasant. Yeah. And when he's 10, around about 13, 23, or when he was 15, 13, 28, I read differing accounts. Right. He, w- he was sent away to Naples, oh. where he was basically sent to boarding school. He's 10 years to- old. Yeah, man, Napoleon went to military boarding school when he was 10 years old. Damn. Um, that was the way they did in the yeah. day, man. I mean, yeah. yeah. I should send my kids wish- away. Sophie's 10. Yeah. I can send her away now. She right? Wouldn't it be? Yeah. Find her wick back. But I think it's worth mentioning that. <laughs> no, Boca- you, you send yeah. them away, then you move <laughs> is, is how you do it. <laughs> See? I like you. You think two steps ahead. Uh, yes, I just think chess. it's worth <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that the father worked for the Compagnia di Bardi. He worked for the banking and trading family, the Bardi. So you know, um, he's got a pretty good income. I'm sure he's got some leisure time. I'm sure he's reading in the evenings and the afternoons when he's looking at his wife, but really thinking about the French whore from way back then. But you're right. They get rid of uh, Boccaccio, uh, Boccaccio at age 10. He is now an apprentice to a career in finance and trade, and I'm sure he's loving it. Well, Boccaccino's not reading because no one's writing books. He's sitting there at night with his feet up on his favorite slave going, <laughs> I wish somebody would write some fucking books because, uh, yeah. you know, I'd love to be sitting here reading right now. Yeah. I can read. I can. Just no, no, no one's invented books yet. Why won't somebody, <sighs> inv- except Dante. He's probably reading Dante if yeah, he's reading over anything. and over and over again. Yeah, I've got this one book. People <laughs> used to play, you know, Desert Island books. It was a really easy game. They're like, what's the one book you'd take? Inferno. They go, well, there is only, there is only one book. Inferno. Yeah. There's the yeah. Bible and Inferno. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> So, yeah, so uh, Boccaccio sent off as a kid and uh, he hated the study of finance and trade as much as Petrarch hated being forced to study the law. <laughs> apparently, one of. Spoiled. Go ahead. Well, apparently, the secret to being one of the fathers of the Renaissance is you have to hate your, having a white collar job, <laughs> which is why you and I are the fathers of the podcasting Renaissance. Oh, oh cool. I like that. I should. Yeah. yeah. Podcasting. Actually, we are the fathers of the Renaissance podcast. 
That's which true. is close to being the fathers of the Same podcast thing. renaissance. Same. My lawyer told me uh, this I like Same to think thing. of myself as both. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Somebody, but, an old mate of mine from my Microsoft days was texting me. He's getting into podcasting and he was saying, oh, I'm so, he's texting me on the weekend. He said, I'm so fucking sick of people telling me you're the godfather of podcasting. <laughs> I always go, snort, snort bullshit. And I said, uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm the, I'm not the, I said, I'm, I'm more the like guy. the, uh, I'm the first, first cousin to the uncle of right. the godfather of podcasting. Yeah. Um, but I am the godfather of Australian podcasting and of history podcasting Recognize. and of recording podcasts over Skype. Yeah. Um, so, and of podcast networks. So, hey, there's, you know, only so many things you can be first at. So, so if we were playing cunt. trivia, who is the father of Cameron? Never mind. Okay, let's move on. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. even though um, Boccaccio goes in 1322, 1323, eventually he's going to be followed by his father, um, who is promoted to the head of the bank in 1326. So he moves his family to Naples, and now at least they're all in the same general area, but I can't imagine it's much better for Boccaccio Jr., so Boccaccio Jr. is forced to study finance and trade for about six years. Um, His father eventually agrees to let him quit um, if he agrees to study canon law instead, God. which he reluctantly agrees to because a change is as good as a holiday to a blind man in a field. <laughs> And he does that for another six years, but he gives that up too, basically yeah. when his father dies, because he only wants to become a poet. Now, he apparently made the decision to become a poet while standing at the tomb of our old friend Virgil right. in Naples. Right. Now, the tomb is still there, Ray. Oh, fuck yeah. We got to go. And, and we, who was our mate uh, from Naples, the American oh. military dude who came to Florence to hang out with us and then talked to us about Jesus um, oh, the whole time. <laughs> blanking right now. William! William! Yes. William. Hey, yes. Will, if you're listening to this, I still didn't get those photos, man. You've sent me the link to those photos twice, and it, by the time I get around to it, the link's expired every time. Send it again. Um, so we And go to the tomb of Virgil, uh, yeah, Will, and, and send us some photos. Yeah, yeah. man. So apparently it's still there, but there are no human ashes inside. They were lost while being moved during the Middle Ages. Yeah, I, hate. I hate that when you're, when you're moving your ashes yeah. and people just lose them. How do you lose ashes, by the way? Air anyway. Anyway, yeah. So Boccaccio had fallen in love at this stage uh, with Ovid and Virgil. And then, like Petrarch before him, he fell in love with a married woman. Yeah, I, I just I just want to go back to Ovid for a second. That I think it's I think you're absolutely right. Uh, William Durant said that Will Durant said that he lost his soul to the ancient Latin writings, um, he, the Metamorphosis, the Heroides. Um, but my favorite one was when he practically memorized the Ars Amandi, which was um, Ovid's three steps for a relationship. Book one was about how a man should find a woman. Book two was about how to keep that woman that you found. And book three was for women on how to win and keep men. So this guy, I mean, he's Italian. He's young. He's pretty soon going to be virile. He's reading all these old, old uh, works that are that are stirring the 
passions and his loins. And so, yeah, like you said, it's going to come out. I mean, he, of course, he's going to fall in love with someone that's one, completely inappropriate, and two, Italian men only seem to get turned on during Mass, because that's when they all seem to be falling in love, is during Mass. So it's been a while since I've read The Arzamandi by Ovid. Can you remind me which one of those three books uh, he talks about uh, raping the person that you're in love with? Because oh. I can't remember. Is that the first book, how to, how to attract a woman, or is it how to keep them? Is it, It's somewhere in between well, the two. Yeah. Well, I think if you rape them early and often, they're pretty much yours. No, I don't know. I'm making that up. Oh. No, I can't remember the book. Anyway, yes, so he sees her in church. Um, This is during his years of studying canon law. He's probably in his late teens or early 20s, depending on the timeline that you um, believe. Uh, Yeah, so this, this, like, church was basically the nightclub of the Middle Ages. (laughs) It's where you went to basically just check out the babes um, or the boys if you're a priest. Um, (laughs) And this time, unlike in the case of Petrarch, we actually know who the woman was. Oh, nice. Her name was Maria Diacchino, Mm -hmm. or Aquino, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Um, from Naples uh, and and according to some sources uh, of the family of Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas, the great uh, 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 Christian uh, scholar. Of the Middle Ages. We know it was her because uh, basically Boccaccio told us uh, in, in, in hidden passages, and this, the way he did this blows my fucking mind. Right. So he, he writes a number of love poems. In, she's his muse for his entire life, mm-hmm. um, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a lot more detail. But he's very careful not to mention her name outright for obvious reasons. She's married. Right. But he reveals it in things like acrostics. You want to explain to people what an acrostic is, Ray? No, because I don't remember. <laughs> an acrostic is where the first letter or the first syllable or the first word of each line right. or of each paragraph, you can do it in different ways, spells out a word. Ah. So, you, you know, you get your motivational slogan that has uh, 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 teamwork, the first letter of each word. If you read down the page vertically, it says yeah. team, but across it says titties, <laughs> everything, asswipe. That's- Motherfucker. Right. Yeah. But you read down, it says team. That's an acrostic. So, so, um, he, he, he would, he would give us a name in acrostics. But here's the thing he didn't just write her name in an acrostic. In one of his poems, The Amorosa Visioni, the initial letters of its 1500 triplets. Really? Composed two sonnets and a ballad in her honour. Wow. So let me say that again. He wrote a poem called the Amorosa Vision, made up of 1,500 lines. If you take the first letter of those 1,500 lines, it composes an extra two sonnets and a ballad. But then, (laughs) but then, and and in, in that acrostic, he calls her by her true name, but then... Inside that acrostic, the f- the initial letters of the first, third, fifth, 
seventh and ninth lines are another acrostic that formed her true name. An Damn. acrostic inside an acrostic inside a poem. <laughs> this is inception-level madness here we're talking about. <laughs> Couldn't he just jerk off thinking about her? Did he really have to go to all this trouble? I mean, oh, my God, that, but that is he impressive. Was, he was spinning his top at the end of that, and it just kept on spinning. He was so far up his own asshole that he didn't know where it ended. A bit like oh. our podcasts. Oh, my God. So <clears throat> that's how we know her true name. Now, only she and her closest friends would have known who he was talking about, but I, I want to know how. Like, <laughs> How do you think of that so, yeah, Exactly. Did he have to say to her, hey, listen, uh, by the way, yeah. If you uh, read the first lines mm-hmm. and then take the first, third, fifth, seventh, ninth lines of that and read those, left a little something in there for you. Um, or were there people sitting around and looking for these sorts of things? Uh, ah, like people like people look for hidden meanings. Right. Yes, the Dan Browns of the day looking for <laughs> Bible codes. Da Vinci codes inside of the Bible. Maria codes. Yeah. I know there are people who do that. Like, um, have you ever watched uh, the TV show Mr. Robot? No. Great show. Great show. Coming to an end this year, I think it's going to be the final season, but mm. it's basically about some hackers that uh, destroy the world economy. and uh, Through poetry? Um, yeah. But, 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 but the show is made by some uber nerds and, and they've hidden a lot of secret codes inside the show. Oh, and if you, go, if you go and jump on the Mr. Robot subreddit, every time an episode comes out, people are searching the episode for clues and then stringing the clues together, which leads them to websites and the websites get you to phone a number and you phone the number and that number has a voicemail that you listen to, which has other codes in it, which leads you to this other website, which leads you to a street and a place. And there's a poster on the wall where there's a code that you have to put into a fucking scanner. And that, you know, it's this massive, you know, can, People on Reddit do. People who aren't <laughs> producing podcasts <clears throat> have an enormous amount of time to, right. to do this stuff. Anywho, so oh that's that's what Boccaccio was into as well. Now, yeah. Maria di Aquino was a royal bastard. And well, that's I not and very I, nice. Well, it was oh, you for mean her, I, I guess. You're not just describing yeah, literally. her personality. Okay, go ahead, continue. She was the illegitimate daughter, it is believed, of King Robert the Wise. Mm-hmm. Um, he was called Robert the Wise because he, you know, I don't know was, had a lot of illegitimate kids. They're like, that's, that's the smart way to go. Don't have your own. Just right. have royal bastards that you'd have to take care of. I concur. King of Naples and the Count of Provence. Nice. Yeah, I, I heard that uh, Maria was, uh, because she is not just anybody, she was educated in a convent. She was married at the sexy age of 15 to the to the Count of Aquino. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. She's married. She's spoken for. If she's smart enough, she knows uh, where her uh, her bread is buttered. But um, And I don't know what age this started. It seems that her husband couldn't um, fulfill her. 
in certain ways. And so I don't think it's too much longer after her marriage that she not only seeks out lovers, which happened a lot in Naples, as we'll go into, but uh, there was another prerequisite. Um, They have to have tons of cash to spend on her. So here's this young writer who is um, probably still... um, probably gets off every time he sees her in mass, but the point is she's got these sophisticated rich lovers who are spending their time and their money on her. This kid writer, Boccaccio, doesn't stand a chance at this time. Yeah, getting back to her birth, though, Mm -hmm. um, hard to unpick this. So you said she was married to the Count of Aquino, but um, her father, her, her, her... Sort of uh, not biological father. She was the daughter of Robert, but her her mother's husband, let's say that, was actually Count Thomas the Fourth of Aquino. Mm. So that when you say she, I, and I have read oh, in other sources that she was right. married. So it's there's a bit of confusion right, right. around her story. According to Boccaccio, apparently yeah. though, Maria's mother was a provincial noblewoman, so a French. She had yeah. a French mother like he did. <laughs> uh, Prov- Provençal. Provence- Provençal. Pro- from Provence, basically. Provincial? Yeah. Well, that sounds like she's from the provinces, but oh, yeah, from I've, Provence. I've no- she was oh, from Provence. Oh, a Provence. Got it. Yeah. So bar- apparently, uh, during King Robert's coronation festivities in 1310, right. uh, he said, Oi. Come here, Countess Sibylla, uh, wife of one of my noblemen, and uh, banged her. Um, you know, it, it's, <coughs> good the, it's, it good it's good to be the king. It is good to be the king. Yeah, basically. So, um, uh, uh, those French knocked her up. Are so understanding. They really are. <coughs> yeah, 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 aren't they? Um, so. Anyway, she, she gets given the, the, the family name of her mother's husband, Aquino. Not long after she was born, um, her mother died. Aww. Her father sent her to be educated in a convent. Then he died as well. Ooh. So she's raised in a convent. And if anything's going to turn you into a filthy whore, Ray, <laughs> it's being raised in a convent. That's been, yes. you know, that's, I think on. that's well understood. I need a moment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> did you just look up Bukaki? No. Uh, or Goatsy. Uh, she was married at 15 to a uh, nobleman mm-hmm. um, from Naples. Now, she didn't want to. She didn't want to marry him, apparently. No. King Robert apparently pushed her into it um, as he pushed it into her mother. <laughs> um, she agreed to it. <laughs> On the condition that if she wanted to, she could return to the convent. Right. Um, I don't know how she felt like she was in a position to make demands of the king. Like, like I'm your bastard child and what I, you know, you have to listen to me, something. Yeah. Um, Anyway, he agreed to that. And as it turned out, as you say, she didn't like her husband much. He didn't keep her juices flowing. So she started to sleep with a wide range of men. Sure. Um, according to one biography I read of Boccaccio, and then she also found that stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Yeah, that's hot. Now, I'm on a keto diet, which means I don't eat bread. Right. Um, 
Except in secret. Right. Um, yeah. You, <laughs> usually, right. after I cook a steak in butter or I roast a leg of lamb and then there's the juices in the, in the pot afterwards yeah. or in the fry pan when I cook the steak, I have to. It's part of my religion. I have to get a piece of bread out dip and it. dip it in the juices and dip eat it. Dip it good. Uh, little Boots, uh, somebody told me. Caligula. Little Boots, somebody. In... in <laughs> I was fucking in uh, 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 in just in LA. Uh, uh, shit, uh, fucking! I was in a restaurant in LA years ago. Mm-hmm. This is a great story. Oh, well, the guy who owned the restaurant was an Italian American guy who was the father of the baby inside the pregnant woman who I went out to dinner with who was an old girlfriend of mine. They weren't together, but he was paying for her house um, in Malibu. And uh, I went there thinking I was going to, you know, get it on. She said, come and stay with me in Malibu. And I said, yeah, okay. And then she picked me up from the airport and she was like eight months pregnant Um, and was sleeping with the the shaman who I've mentioned on other shows before. Anyway, her... The father, the baby daddy of her child told me after we, the Italians dip bread in the steak gravy and call it little boots. I don't know. Or little shoes, which is Caligula. I don't know how I, but I didn't right. know that at the time. Anyway, cool. fucking, I don't know why I told you that story. So anyway, bread. Oh yeah, bread eaten in secret bread. is pleasant. Yeah. Now, according again to this biographer I read, she excused herself for her adultery by saying, what is lawfully pursued is apt to be considered of small account, even though it be most excellent. But what is difficult of attainment, even if contemptible, is held in high esteem. Did she hire Barry and Stan to come up with that? She did. That wow. was uh, one of that was a Barry and Stan. Uh, we should get that on a coffee mug. So, what you can get easily, no one cares. Yeah. But what's hard to get? Even if getting of it is bad, it's it's tastes better. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. spicy. So this is Maria de Aquino, um, the, uh, the teenager, the slutty muse of the one of the rapey fathers of the Renaissance. And um, I, I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, so I think you said this a couple of minutes ago. Boccaccio first saw her during Mass on Holy Saturday in thirteen thirty one. Exactly four. Well, you know, exactly four Easter's after Petrarch's discovery of Laura. Now, you you came up with the with the theory, I think, that Petrarch. We're not sure if he ever approached her. Maybe he just wrote a whole bunch and jerked off or whatever. But we know that at some point, to some degree, Boccaccio is going to pursue her. But again, because she's got all these other stable of lovers to come behind her, literally, and spend money on her, <laughs> she pretty much brushes him off because he's a child and she's obviously even at a young age as a woman of the world and she knows what she wants and she's going after it and it ain't him they were coming behind her <laughs> on her in her well, all over her titties which is why as long as he invented Bukaki. right right yes uh <laughs> Did they have too, checks too soon in the third, in the fourteenth century? Well, they had double Naples, entry. I'm not um, sure. They had banknotes. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, that's probably why they invented. Now, it. 
uh, I learned a lot by reading her story. So apparently, um, you know, she she had this deal with Robert that she could, she would get married, but she could go back to the convent. Apparently, convents in those days was where you went um, if you wanted to have a series of illicit lovers. <clears throat> what? Convents, yeah, convents were treated, from what I read, like a bit of a weekend resort. Um, if you wanted to get away from the hustle bustle of the city, right, you'd go to a convent on the weekend. It was quiet. It was peaceful. No one asked what was going on. You could have some privacy. You would have like parties there. And she had a room and was able to sneak men in. If you wanted to bang Maria and when her husband was around, obviously she'd do a lot of banging when her husband went away on business. (laughs) But if her husband was around, she'd go, just meet me at the convent. You'd go down, slip it in at the convent. All good. No one asked. Uh, So she does a lot of her transactions Apparently at her convent. Wow. Um, and the the rest of the 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 was it a nun? I guess at a convent, um, they just watch through peepholes. Yeah. Um, Sounds right. That was the deal. Yeah, because you know they, they they didn't get any. Um, they just you know got their jollies by watching. As as we're going to see, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I save it, but there's a particular story in the Decameron which will completely, um, well, which which uh, exemplifies this as well as far as um, everybody having a good time at this place. It was it was like a miniature Vegas, and as we're going to see, it that's it, this isn't the only place. This is the only convent where this happened at. It was just what you did. Yeah. Now, according to Boccaccio, uh, Maria had a whole series of lovers who she got to buy her nice things as well. She would make each of them think that they were the only ones she loved at that particular time. <laughs> he wrote that she said, and I have laughed at them all, choosing, wow. however, those who took my fancy and who were judged apt to give me pleasure. But no sooner was the fire spent then I broke the vase which contained the water and flung away the pieces. Wow. Yeah. Cougar. She's a very she's the youngest cougar in history. And one of those lovers was Boccaccio, but he had to work and at getting into her pants. Exactly. Yeah, it took, to it, it took him it took him years. He had to earn it. She made him earn it. <laughs> now when he first laid eyes on her in church, he wrote There appeared to my eyes the wondrous beauty of a young woman. Come thither to hear what I too heard attentively. I had no sooner seen her than my heart began to throb. I don't think it was just his heart. heart. Yeah. Yeah. So strongly that I felt it in my slightest pulses. And not knowing why, nor yet perceiving what had happened, I began to say, Oh, Hime, what is this? But at length, being unable to sate myself with gazing, I said, O love, most noble Lord, whose strength not even the gods were able to resist, I thank thee for setting happiness before my eyes. I had no sooner said these words than the flashing eyes of that lovely lady fixed themselves on mine. Fiametta, for it was she, was tall and slanciata. Her hair is so blonde that the world holds nothing like it. It shades a white forehead of noble width, beneath which are the curves of two black and most slender eyebrows, and under these two roguish eyes, cheeks of no other colour than milk. 
So uh, Fiametta, which is Italian for little flame, was uh, what he calls her. And and Fiametta appears in all of his poems and his prose stories. She's a recurring character. So when he's talking about Fiametta, he's talking about Maria. That was his nickname for her. And, right. and that's another way that he sort of tells everything that we know about her. We know from his poems and his prose writings because he basically tells us in code uh, in both in acrostics and also when he's telling the story of Fiametta, um, all about uh, Maria. Right. And as you said, this is in 1331, apparently, and he would have been 18 when he first lays eyes on her. Do you remember being 18, Cam? I mean, at that point, no, no brain, all balls, and you feel everything in your pants. That's, of course, he's in church, so it's a sin, but the point is... I mean, it just had to be a heady moment for him to see her and just feel all that, I don't know, all, all that physical attraction for the juices get going. And that, like you said, is going to stimulate his obvious talent, obvious talent uh, for writing. And he's going to do a lot of it. Boccaccio knew what he wanted. He wanted to get into <laughs> Maria's pants. Yeah, 18. Full yeah. of lust. Now, <clears throat> um, we'll, we'll wrap it up, I guess, here. But mm-hmm. suffice to say that 12 days later, he happens to visit the convent where she was brought up and she was there Ooh. partying in the convent. And uh, he apparently starts telling her lots of romantic love stories. Um, and she commissions him to write a novel based on what was a, a, a sort of a popular uh, tale amongst the people at the time about two lovers, Floris and Blanche Flower. 
which becomes his novel, the Filocolo. Um, but we'll talk about that, I guess, uh, in the next episode. But just to, to it's going to take him five or six years to get into her pants. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you've worked five or six years to try and get into someone's pants, Ray, but uh, it's, it's a huge amount of dedication at that age. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one, you didn't take very long. Two, I did have to marry <laughs> Heather first, so I was well, I was willing to pay the price for that. But uh, yeah, so he, but the good thing for him is he is. It's going to take him five years, but there will be distractions for him. He is going to travel around. He's going to go to Paris. But yeah, that is a long time to be in lust with any one person. Hold on, you, you had to marry Heather first. Yeah, Let's said, just stop and I said, give it to me. She said no. I said. Will you marry me? Yes. Can I have it now? Yes. After I marry you. Fuck. So I actually had to go through with it. What oh, if? Yeah. What would you have done if you know it didn't work? What? The sex? Like in the, in the, in the uh, yeah the sack the sex in the sack. If you if you get in the sack and it's no good, then what do you do? Um, well, she can't leave me because it's a Catholic wedding. I just go cheat on her. I don't really <laughs> understand how this is complicated. And how long between when you met her uh, was it to when you got married? I don't even. It was. Yeah. It, it was a long yeah, time. It was a long time for how me, long? but it was even longer yeah. for my penis. How long? I don't. It was. It was. Let's see. Ninety six. Oh, it was a good five years. <laughs> so you did wait five years, like yeah. Boccaccio. You are Boccaccio, my friend. You I had to earn that pussy. I did pussy. write her notes. I did write her notes. I'm sure there were oh nowhere near. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there were no wow. hidden messages inside. I can fucking tell you that. No. I barely. Yeah. Roses are red. <laughs> violets are blue. It makes something let rhyme me, with blue. Let, let me fuck your pussy right now, <laughs> bitch. Or I'll turn it blue. On that, you can't, use, you can't rhyme blue with blue. See, I, wouldn't, I couldn't have done it. My, my balls are blue. Yeah. <laughs> If you don't let me fuck you soon, my balls will be blue. <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue. Please, 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 please let me fuck you. Love, right? <laughs> P.S. Oh, my God. I really, really, That's... really mean it. I, I like really when I met you. when I, I, you know, I understand the story because when I met Chrissy for the first time, you know, she made me wait 48 hours and that was a tough... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. That was a tough 48 hours, man, i got to tell you. I wasn't quite sure if I was going to hold out. So, um... yeah, That's very big of you, Cam. Piece of shit. It was very big of me. Yeah. 